What separates a true Christian from the rest of mankind? What separates someone who follows Christ from someone who is not following Christ? Now, in that, we could give several answers all centered around faith in Christ. All of our answers would have to center around God's grace on our life, which brought forth faith in Christ, which now has put us in Christ so that we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are saved. We have had the wrath of God taken away from us and the sentence of death and eternal hell taken from us and the judgment of God and the condemnation that was due our sin bore by our Savior. All of our answers would center around that. But today I want to focus on a very singular purpose in that question. What separates any Christian in this room from Christians, from non-Christians? And the answer that I, I think comes from Psalm 32 is repentance. What separates a Christian is not a life lived sinlessly. What separates a Christian from his non-Christian neighbor, friend, co-worker, spouse, relative, is not that the Christian is good and the lost person is bad. What separates the Christian in one sense that we're focusing on today is repentance. And repentance has been so abused in our culture, so misdefined, that we don't even know what repentance is any longer, many of us. You see, we've narrowed repentance to this. And tell me if you don't think this is what we've done. We have said that repentance is what non-Christians do to become Christians. They repent of their sin and God forgives them. And they enter the way of salvation. And they leave behind the door. The door, in our analogy, to the way of salvation is repentance. That's what our culture of Christianity has done. That's what our churches have done. They've said, repent of your sin and believe and be saved. They've given that right command. That is a right command. That comes from the words of the Scripture, from Old and New Testament. But there is also a command from Scripture that indicates to us that our life, once we are a Christian, is a life of repentance. Moment by moment, day by day, week after week, month after month, year after year, what defines a Christian is the one who lives in repentance of themselves and dependence on Christ. The correct application of repentance is this. One who sees himself as a sinner in and of himself and looks to a holy God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and lays claim to what is only given by that Savior, salvation from sin. Salvation from Himself. That is repentance. It is, in its truest sense, a turning and a way of life. It's not just that you at one time turned from your sin. 
It's that you turned from your sin and then walked on the way to the Lord. Found your hope only in Him. One has said, repentance is the mark of a person walking the way of salvation. Every day is a day of repentance. So sad that our culture has said that Christianity is perfection. And that if you're struggling with sin, you must not be saved. So you need to get saved again. So we have little tent revivals, and we have little three-day revivals. We call in an evangelist. He guilt trips us all that we've sinned, and we need to get saved. And we baptize people five and six and ten and twenty times. They don't need to be baptized. They need to repent and walk in repentance. See themselves for who they are. See God for who He is and cling in faith to the one who can save them every day. You know that you've misdefined repentance when you talk in salvation terms that are all past tense. I got saved. I believed in Jesus. God saved me. And you put an address on that way back here only. That is part of the truth. God did save you if you are a Christian. And there is a point in which you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But never, ever, ever, Grace Fellowship, miss that salvation is a present tense action. If God doesn't continue to save you at this moment, you will bust hell wide open. And so the reason we misapply and misunderstand and misdefine repentance is because we do the same thing with salvation. We talk about salvation as if salvation and the gospel is an entry point. And then we live a life filled with all of our obedience and our goodness. That's evangelical hogwash. We enter salvation by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Through the door of faith in Him and repentance unto Him. And we walk every day in the salvation of Jesus Christ, believing by faith in the Son of God and repenting of ourself constantly. Every day. So many self righteous people fill the roles of our churches because we don't believe in repentance correctly. And you will be saved. If you're in Christ, we give you the hope that comes only in Him. You have been saved, you will be saved, and by His grace, you will be saved one day. And there will come a day where repentance will be no more. When He wipes every tear from the eye, and He makes everyone new in the new heaven and the new earth, and we will rightly stand in Him for all of eternity, rejoicing, praising, working, but not repenting anymore because sin will be a past tense. But hear me, it is not at this moment. So many of us think we've moved on. We've graduated somehow from the school of the gospel. We no longer need repentance. No, we need to walk in repentance daily. It is the way of salvation. Now what are we repenting of? We're repenting of sins of commission. Things that we do. Violations of the law, transgressions of the righteousness of God, stray thoughts, anger in our hearts, malice towards our brothers, hatred of our enemies. 
Robbing God of His glory because we take it in ourselves. We commit the act of idolatry daily. And the sins of omission. We don't do what He's called us to do so often. We repent of not only sins of commission, but of omission. We repent daily as Christians of inward sin and outward sin. I met an old man one time who I was visiting in the nursing home some years ago, and he was um, sitting in his room by himself, so I stopped by and said, how are you doing? He was babbling on about something, and we began to talk, and and I said, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? I mean, this man's in his 80s, and he's like, oh, yeah, son, I know him. I know him. I got saved, and he gave me a time and a place and the whole thing, and I said, that's awesome. Are you walking with him today? He said, yeah. I don't sin anymore. My heart breaks for the misunderstanding. Why? Because he's limited sin. The only way that's true is he's limited sin to outward action. And now he's in a nursing home and he sits in a bed all day. He's confined. He doesn't see that many people. He doesn't have any enemies to be mad at anymore. He's losing his mind, but he's still enough faculties to know I'm a pretty good guy. I sit here all day. I talk about the Lord. I I I eat my food, I watch my little TV shows, and I go to sleep, and I'm good. I don't sin anymore. I don't sin sexually. I don't sin by anger. I'm, I'm good. I'm outwardly good. But he's miscounted because God not only sees the outward, but he sees the inward. And Jesus says it's the inward things which defile the man, not the outward things. He's misdefined what is sin. He's misdefined what is repentance. He's misdefined what is salvation. We sin inwardly and outwardly, and so therefore we need to repent. We're guilty of idolatry. We lack reverence for the glory of God, as the Bible says. I was reminded this week in the Friday morning Bible study, one of the guys in there was just talking about how God has really awakened him to the fact of how much He misses the glory of God in the things of this life. And it just struck me. I'm I'm guilty of it, Lord. And in that moment, by God's grace, I just repented. Oh, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. We misappropriate God's grace by neglecting the glory due His name. We're in need of repentance. We're in need of walking in repentance every day, all day. So often we lose sight of the reality that without humble repentance, no one draws near to the holy God. No one comes into the courtroom of heaven like that 80-something-year-old man who says, I don't sin anymore, I'm just going to come on in. Nobody comes that way. We all come through humility and brokenness and repentance. David was one who came to understand his need of continual repentance. And if we look at him, he understood this context or this concept. And we can look at passages. Before we get to Psalm 32, look at Psalm 51 quickly because that's the most famous. Psalm 32 is talking about the same idea. Psalm 51 is the one we always go to. The context of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 is the sin that David has committed as a believer, as a follower of Yahweh. He has committed sin. What has he done? He has committed adultery. He has killed his best friend, Uriah the Hittite, one of his most loyal soldiers. He murdered him. 
he did not go out into the battlefield with the army of God, that in itself was a sin. And he lived in deceit until Nathan the prophet came and fingered him as the prophet only could that God knew his sin. And so we get Psalm 51 where he cries out in repentance, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your covenant love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is not a lost man crying for salvation. This is a saved man saying, continue to save me, God. I'm a sinner. I need you. Have mercy on me. Not because I'm good, but because you're a covenant-keeping God and you love those who you have promised to love. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So we have here the, the, the repentant David in Psalm 51, but we have him in Psalm 32 also, our passage for this morning, that defines for us even better, in my opinion, than Psalm 51, what it looks like to be a man of repentance, to be a woman of repentance, to be a true Christian. Psalm 32 follows in the line of Psalm 1, the blessed man. That's been his attitude throughout this first book, is who is the blessed man and who is the man who is not blessed. And we find here, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, expiated. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, who is justified, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, personal experience, with Bathsheba, Uriah's murder, and the deception that he put on Israel... When I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up at the heat as by the heat of summer. That's his personal testimony. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Pause and ponder this, he says. His Selah. Stop and just sit and soak in the fact that God forgives sin. That I cried out to Him and He heard me and forgave me. Therefore, so now He instructs us, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Pause and think about it, people. God has delivered us, he's saying. God has delivered you, Grace Fellowship. God has given you salvation in his Son. He is not counting your iniquity against you. He is not Letting your transgressions stand before Him as a record of wrong, but He has consumed it in His Son, and He has delivered you from sin. Think about it. Be amazed. Sit in awe of Him. He is good to forgive those who cry out to Him. 
for, for repentance, for salvation. Grace Fellowship, He is a stronghold. He is a protector. He is the one who will save us from the deep waters of our sin. Stop and think about it. We who deserve to be dropped into the pit and the abyss of hell have been saved, rescued, taken from death and given life. Think about it, he says. Now God takes up the pen. Direct address from God Almighty. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What is the counsel the Almighty would give to us, His children? Be not like a mule. Be not like a horse without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle. Or it will not stay near you. That's the instruction from our God. I don't know. Most of you did not grow up on a farm, so you have no clue what He's talking about here. But I have had the pleasure or the not-so-pleasure of trying my hand at a breaking bit. Put it in that horse's mouth, and you make it. You force it. You consume its pride and its strength, and you strip it of all of its independence, and you say to that horse, through that bit, you will do what I say. That's what the Almighty is saying to His children. Don't be like a mule who doesn't have understanding. Or I will pit, put the bit in your mouth and you will submit. It's not a threat. We're going to see that, I hope, today. It's a promise that we should hold on to in our day of non-repentance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We have before us what I believe is the clearest teaching on repentance in the whole Bible. That's why Paul chose it in Romans 4 to tell us what it means to be in faith. He quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. That's why Carlton read Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. Right there in the middle of his teaching on Abraham, the faithful father of the faithful ones in Christ, he says he was a man who was blessed because he was a repentant son of God. And he was the one whose transgressions were forgiven and sins are covered. And God isn't counting his iniquity. He's justified. He's not being counted as unrighteous. So let's look at this passage. Psalm 32, 1-5 through 5 teaches us that there is a state of blessedness in forgiveness. There is a state of blessedness in forgiveness. The Bible calls the children of God blessed. It never refers to those who are not His children as blessed. The Bible continually does it. Psalm 1 does it. Blessed is the man who sits not in the seat of the scornful nor stands in the way of sinners. That's the blessed man. Here again, the blessed man, Paul, uh, Psalm picks it up. The psalmist David picks it up when he says, Blessed 
is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. First of all, David states that a man is blessed when he is forgiven. He's forgiven of what? His transgressions. The things which he has done against a holy God. He has broken the law. He is a sinner. He's not simply a sinner because he was born in sin, though that's true. In Psalm 51 verse 5 he says, I was made in iniquity. When I came forth from my mother, I was a sinner. But he's more than that. He's a transgressor. He's not just passively born in sin, but he activates that by choosing to rebel against God. And that's the testimony of everyone in this room. We've all been that. And God is blessing the one whose transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered, it says. In the Old Testament, we have the idea of expiation. The throne room of God was represented in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later the temple. And in there, the Ark of the Covenant sat. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was known as the seat of mercy. And every year, once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and put the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. And that was in symbol of we are claiming your forgiveness for our sin. We are calling on you to save us from our sin. We are calling on you to extend mercy to those who need mercy. We need mercy. Don't give us what we deserve. Paul's going to take that idea and wrap expiation or covering for us. He explains it further by saying he propitiates the wrath of God. God propitiated. He satisfied His wrath in Jesus on our behalf. So now we have not only covering for our sin, but as Hebrews says, we have a perfect sacrifice in which all of our sins are forgiven and separated from us. So, so Psalm 31, uh, 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered by the blood of the sacrifice on the seat of mercy. God Blesses the one who he forgives. Not only that, but he goes on in verse 2 to say that he doesn't count their iniquity against them. God has no record book for his children of their sin. I mean, that should overwhelm us, right? You don't want, let's be honest, you don't want God to count the sin you committed from the time you got up this Sunday morning until you're sitting in that seat right now. Do you? That alone, these four or five hours you've been breathing, conscious, awake, you have done sin that deserves the wrath of God, and you better, I better be thankful God doesn't count that iniquity against us. This is an accounting idea. This is the same idea in Romans 4, which is why Paul brings this forward to the, the passage in Romans 4. Counted. We are counted righteous. We are not counted as those who've done iniquity. We're blessed. You say, well, I'm not blessed. I'm not blessed, preacher, because my marriage is struggling. I'm not blessed because financially I'm not as well off as those other folks are. I'm not blessed because my children aren't saved or my dog died or my teacher took up my homework a day earlier than I expected and I got a zero. I'm not blessed. The Bible points us from these temporal momentary afflictions and says, listen, you're blessed because God 
Almighty no longer counts your sin against you, Christian. You're blessed because He's forgiven your transgression. You're blessed because He has covered you. And B, part of verse 2, is that we are conscious, our conscience is clean. (laughs) There is no spirit of deceit. Have you had that moment? We'll talk about it in human terms. Where you've sinned against someone. Let's take your wife, for instance. Guys that are married. You sinned against her. And... You know, for a day or two, you just didn't want to say, I sinned, I did wrong, I did this. And so you kind of carry it, and there's all this tension felt, this uneasiness in the relationship. And then finally you come and say, honey, I just got to tell you, I'm broken because I sinned against you. And your wife hears the confession, and she extends grace and not the iron skillet of wrath. And you go to bed that night and you snuggle up next to her and your conscience is clean. There's no deceit anymore. It's gone. And there's cleanness. David says the same thing is true when you confess your sin to God and you repent from your heart. There's blessing in having a clear conscience before Him and to know you're not living a lie. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquity is not counted against him. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity because his spirit is not deceitful. His conscience is clean. So first of all, in the state of forgiveness, we find blessing because David points to us that we are forgiven. Secondly, in verses 3-4, through David gives us his life experience. This is true, verses 1 and 2. And now David, the good teacher, says, let me tell you how I know it's true. I had sexual relations with a woman who was not my wife. I killed one of my most trusted warriors. He, Uriah the Hittite lived close enough to the king that he could see her Bathsheba bathing on a roof when he took her. We know that Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. I slept with his wife. I murdered him to cover the deceit or the the sin. And then I deceived the nation by continuing to act like I had nothing in my life that would forbid me from leading them before the Lord. I lived that way in unrepentance. And this is the story of that. Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones, the marrow in my bones, the strength and vitality of my bones wasted away. David says that his silence brought physical sickness. His silence, secondly, brought mental anguish. From my groaning all day long. So he was physically ill, weak, sick, and mentally disturbed. He groaned all day long. Verse 3 tells us of the penalty or the discipline that has to be enacted when we won't repent. Now, verse 4, 
goes further to say that God was heavy on him. His hand of discipline was on him. And again, it references that David lost life. He, 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 he lost his strength. He lost his power. David tells us of the, the man that is forgiven is blessed. And then he says, I wasn't forgiven of these things. I wasn't clean with God. And I suffered in this way. And then he returns in verse 5 to say, I confessed my sin and returned to the blessing of salvation. David owned his sin. I acknowledged. That word acknowledge means to own it personally. My sin to you. Now I want to say something here about this. Because we're going to. We'll talk some more about repentance. Repentance is not, dear God, please forgive me because I've done wrong things today. That's not repentance. That's a vague slap of the hand at God. I know I'm supposed to say that I'm sorry for my sin, so I'm going to just say it. Get it out of the way. It's perfunctory. That's not what David did. I acknowledged that word means to know my sin. He took his sin to God one by one. He didn't just generally say, I'm a sinner. He said, I've sinned in this way and that. Specifics. When's the last, I'm going to ask a question here. When's the last time in, in my study notes, I just circle. When's the last time, Carlton, you got on your face before a holy God and said, I have done these things wrong. These sins I have committed. When's the last time, Christian, that you named the sins that you've committed before a holy God? And you have said, forgive me. So often we treat His grace like a hall pass. We treat His grace like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. And we say, oh, God, we live in a state of grace. We don't have to worry about sin. Sin's not counted against us. We're free. I'm not going to talk about my sin. I'm just going to kind of flippantly throw the, like the blessing before me. Oh, God, bless this food. Forgive me my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. That's as deep as some of you repent. That's as deep as sometimes I want to go. Because I don't want to acknowledge my sin before God. I don't want to say to God, I thought this. I said this. I acted in this way. I committed this idolatry. I worshiped this thing. And so David owns, acknowledges his sin. And then in the C part of verse 5, David moves beyond acknowledging it. And repents of it before the Lord. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's one part there. He knows it and now he moves beyond knowing it to repenting of it. Confessing of it before the Lord. And look what the last part holds out to us. The hope of forgiveness. You forgave me of my iniquity. So we see in these first five verses a pattern of the blessed man. Why is the man blessed? We see the picture of one who's not blessed 
David at that moment wasn't experiencing the blessings of God. He was a Christian. He was ultimately blessed, but temporally he was struggling in sin. He was suffering physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually because he wouldn't confess his sin. And then he comes back again and details for us his confession and his repentance. 6 through 9 here in our passage, David instructs us in regard to confession. And this is where I want to spend most of the rest of our time together. He says, first of all, that the godly are to draw near to God in repentance before the day of discipline. Verse 6. Therefore, command. This is the first command in our passage. This is the first thing that we're told to do. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Not just a general prayer, but in the context, a prayer of repentance. Let them offer a prayer to you in a day when you may be found. Before the day of discipline. Why? Because the mighty waters come and in that day, no one will find it. This is a veiled reference to the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Remember? What did Noah do? He preached repentance and preached repentance and preached repentance and then got done and put the animals on. He got on. God shut the door. And what did the sinners do when it started raining? We're left to believe that they beat against the door wanting to get in now, but in the day of the mighty waters, they could not find God. This is the reference. When the rush of waves and waters come upon them, they won't find God. Don't wait till then, he's saying, but rather come to God in a day when He may be found. Come to God before He begins to discipline. We see in verse 7, God is a refuge to those who come to Him. He's not counting their sin against them. He's not holding their transgression over their head. He's not punishing them beyond repentance. But when they repent, He is a refuge to them, a hiding place. He is a one who preserves them in the day of trouble. He surrounds them with deliverance. Celebrations of deliverance. You see in a backstory way that he's talking about, again, probably drawing on the analogy of the Israelites coming through the Red Sea and then joyfully celebrating the deliverance of God as they've been brought out of Egypt. But he doesn't stop there. He writes, I believe, in verse 8, shifts happen there, and he writes now what God is saying. So David says, repent. When God may be found, repent. Before the mighty waters come, repent. He's a good hiding place. He will preserve you. He will surround you with shouts of salvation and deliverance. That's David. And then David writes the words of God. Because God takes on the place here of showing us the negative of what happens if we're not repentive. What does he say in verse 9? Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Nine is an, is an exact recounting of six, verse six. Verse six is the positive. Repent. While you have an opportunity, repent. Verse nine is, if you don't repent... God will bring you to repentance. God will bring you to repentance. Now, we come to that part that brings us, makes us nervous a little in our day. So let me end this way. 
God will guide us in seeking forgiveness by telling us the negative example of the, one of the, the most prideful animal in the barnyard. Paul can tell you. He's had radar for years. And he, mules are prideful. Stubborn is what we call it, but it's prideful. They don't want to do what their owners tell them to do. Am I right, Paul? Most of the time. Until you get their attention, they don't want to listen. Right? You can stand with sweet feed, and you can beg and plead, but if he don't want to come, he ain't coming. You got to get the bridle. You got to get the bit. You got to go out to the back 40. You got to put it in his mouth, put the bridle over his head, and apply a little pressure to him. And then he comes. That's what God says. David said, repent now while you have an opportunity before the day of discipline. God says, if you don't repent now, I will put a bridle in your mouth and I will break you to humility. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. Here we have God's breaking bit. What is his breaking bit? What curbs the mule's resistance? Often we can say it is suffering. Psalm 32.9 is, the, again, one of the clearest passages in the Bible to tell us that God disciplines all those that he loves. So you're sitting here as his child. I just want to speak to you for just a moment. All those who are not children of God, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking just to the children. And you're resisting and you're not coming and you're saying, I won't come to God. I know I'm in sin, but I'm, not, I'm going to live here. I'm going to do this. I just want to tell you, God loves you too much to let you continue in sin. There will come a day where because you have continued in sin, He will discipline you. And often that discipline comes in suffering. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual struggle and suffering. All physical mental and emotional struggling is not because of sin. All of it is not that way. You can't look at someone externally and say, hey, he must be in sin. He's got cancer. You can't do that. But the man who has cancer, please listen to this, should start, first of all, in the area of have I sinned against God and not repented Am I living in unrepentance? That's where the man with cancer should start. Not dismissing it as something merely physical. I'm going to give you the proof of that. In Genesis chapter 3, when man sinned against God, verse 16, God cursed him. How did he curse him? Only spiritually? You will till by the sweat of your brow and you will fight thorns and thistles. A physical curse came with that sin, didn't it? A brokenness physically was ascribed there. We can go further. Moses. Moses, in Numbers chapter 20, strikes the rock. God tells him, speak to the rock. Moses, in pride, in anger against the sin of the people, strikes the rock. And God says, because you have done this, 
you will not carry these people into the promised land, but you will die. Physically brought discipline on Moses' life because of his sin. He had warned Moses. This was something that had been in Moses' life since his days in Egypt when he killed the Egyptian soldier. God had warned him of his lack of patience with sinners. And he sinned again and God said, I love you too much. I'll discipline you now. Achan. Achan sinned against God. He took spoils from the victory. He hid them in his tent. The people went against Ai and they were routed. This little old city Ai in Joshua 7 routs the people of Israel. And Joshua goes before God and he begs and pleads with God. Why would you do this? And God said, because there is what? Sin in the camp. God judged them for their for Achan's sin, spiritual sin, his idolatry. God judged not just spiritually, but physically. A lot of Israelite soldiers died in Ai because a man sinned against God. David in Psalm 32 describes his wasting away physically, his emotional torment. Because of his sin that he wouldn't repent of. And then God brought him to repentance. We can continue in our survey because now I've given you Old Testament examples. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament, brother. We live in the New Testament. Yes, we do. And so in the New Testament, we find exhortations from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. They were taking the Lord's Supper lightly. They were not living in repentance. And what did he say? Some of you have gotten sick. And some of you have even died because of this sin. And James 5, we don't like to read it very much. James 5. If there be any sick among you, let him do what? Examine himself for sin and call the elders to himself. I'm not the one that's telling you if you're suffering physically as God's child that you should turn to God and see if you live in unrepentance. God tells us that. And I want to give you some positive examples of that among our own body. Okay, I'm not saying these men are perfect, but I'm saying they have exemplified it for us. When Aaron Acker found out that he was sick with cancer, it was one of the, one of the most difficult days for me. And I went to him not long after that and I sat down. I said, Aaron, do you know I love you? Yeah, I know you love me. And we talked. I said, Son, I said, Aaron, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. But I love you enough to ask you, do you think there could be sin there in your life unrepentant? He told me just this week, he said, you know, it really struck me when you said that. Because you were loving me enough to bring the question what no one else would say at that time. There's a possibility, Aaron, that you're in sin and you're unrepentant and God's disciplining you to bring you to repentance. A second example of that was Dave Swinney. Dave was sitting at that back desk back there where Cody is when he got the call that they had found cancer. And I was sitting in my office. We had just talked before that. That day, remember Dave, we had a long talk about it could be cancer. What does it mean if it is cancer? And then he got the call, you've got cancer. 
And he came back there, and he was just distraught. He's broken. I, I told him, he said, I'm going to go home. I said, I'm going to pray for you. So I started praying for him. And before the end of that week, he called me and said, will you elders come to my house? Will you sit down and examine my life to see if there's sin that I've not seen and not repented of? And we did. We went there with oil and we examined his life before the Lord to the very details of his life. He was very confessed, very openly what sins he might be struggling with that could be unrepented. And we anointed him with oil, as James says, in symbol, not that the oil would heal him, but that God would heal him. And in submission to God's holy will. And we prayed for it. It's one of the most convicting moments about sin in my life. To watch a man seriously take the fact that you will waste away physically if you will not repent of your sin. Not because God is judging you, but because God loves you and will put the bit in the mouth to bring you to himself. Hebrews chapter 12. Take your Bible and turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Verse 3, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, but you are fighting against sin. And don't lose heart because that fighting, that physical struggle you're facing, that's what these believers were facing, is God's love for you. He's disciplining you. It is not. It is for discipline that you have to, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time that it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that he, we may share his holiness. Why would God strike his own children with physical discomfort and mental and emotional stress over sin? Because he loves them and he wants to conform them to be holy like he is. He wants to bring them to repentance. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It always hurts, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
Call on the Lord in the day that he may be found, for the deep waters are coming. Esau was judged in those waters. God doesn't let us go through those waters because he puts a bit in our mouth and brings us to humility and repentance. But Esau went through the deep waters and he couldn't get repentance, though he sought it with tears. The day passed him. Repentance wouldn't be had. So what separates a Christian from a non-Christian? Repentance. Not repentance as a doorway into salvation, but repentance as a lifestyle. How does God sometimes bring our stubborn hearts under submission? Just like He did David's. We waste away physically. We emotionally face distress. And we are distraught. Some of you haven't slept well in years because of this. And your strength is gone. And I don't know any particular person in the crowd but I, that's struggling this way, but I'm impressed that there is someone here. That's why I'm straining to make it clear. It's not always that, but we should start there. It's not always sin that causes our sicknesses. But when we're sick, we should, as His children, we should never neglect that it could be God bringing discipline. And we should run to Him in repentance while He may be found. That's the sign of a Christian. That's the sign of true faith. And notice why He's curbing with the bit so that it will stay near. So the mule will stay near. God is disciplining you that you may stay near to Him. It's relationship that He desires. And it brings forth great Steadfast love, which is surrounding those who trust in the Lord and bringing in rejoicing. The last thing we see is rejoicing. That in the moment of his suffering, he was broken, and yet God, when he was humbled, God brought him to himself, and then he rejoiced, and he found joy, and he was upright in heart. James 4 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. This time of year, my mind turns back to a time not long ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, but it really wasn't very long ago when we received a diagnosis that our daughter would die. I went home that day, comforted my wife, and when everyone else was asleep, I was compelled to fall on my knees before God in repentance of my sin. See, early in my Christian walk, I struggled and didn't struggle hard enough at times with the sin of pornography. I was guilty before the Lord. God brought that out in my life and brought forgiveness. But I knew that my sin before the Lord was great. And so when I heard that my little one would not live. I immediately thought, 
this could be because I have not rightly repented. I've only surface level repented of my lust and my adultery with my mind. Not physical adultery, but mental adultery. I've not, done, I've not come clean before the Lord. I've just waxed over it eloquently and passed by it lightly. And now the day has come when He will discipline me and bring me to Himself. I'll tell you to this day, I don't know why Sophie died. Except that she had a genetic disorder and she died. But I know that in those days, God drew near, drew me near, drew my wife near. And there was a hatred for sin like I had never, ever experienced. Any stray thought during those seven months was held captive by the desire to know God and His glory. And so in that, and it still to this day holds me. Still to this day, I'm tempted to sin, and often my mind goes back to the penalty of sin is death. And I know it's true because I've seen it in my own family. And I will not do this because I love God more than I love myself and love sin. And I'm telling you, if for no other reason did God allow and plan the death of my child, but for her hard-hearted daddy to live in repentance, I thank God that he loved me that much. And that he loved my wife and that he loved my children enough to not let us live in unrepentance. And so, I'm calling you, church, to not pass over your sin lightly. Call on the Lord while he may be found. Repent because there will be much rejoicing in your repentance. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. That same hand that was on David. Humble David. It will humble you. Draw near to Him and humble yourself in repentance and He will draw near to you. My call to you this morning, my only application of this sermon is examine your life for some of you, some of you are sick. Because of your sin. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he would not waste his discipline, but he would draw you near to himself. So repent now while he may be found. Come to him now. Find him now. He will not reject you. But he will accept you. And you will find joy in him.